Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Last week, long-time Hong Konger publisher Pete Spurrier talked to me about how he set out on an epic journey from England across the English Channel to see what he could see. Inspired by the Roman road that he grew up on, Pete wanted to travel from a young age as he worked as a schoolboy at the local library and learned about the Romans, Greeks, the ancient Silk Road. Last week, he talked about travelling through France and Spain, on to North Africa and then Italy and on to Greece. He was travelling in 1991 at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which led to the emergence of 15 independent states, and Pete would end up travelling through a few on the most difficult part of his journey before heading on to China with his final destination, Hong Kong. Pete Spurrier is the publisher of Blacksmith Books and the author of a series of popular Hong Kong hiking books. This week's programme begins with the three months he spent living with two others in a Greek cave one winter. So I'll just recap with a minute or two from last week as we continue with Pete in Greece. So I went to the mainland of Greece, the Peloponnese, and did find the orange harvest. I found out that there were a few towns on the mainland where, which had orange harvests and they were going to start in December. So I hitchhiked through the Peloponnese, which is a lovely thing to do because it's a wonderful landscape of, you know, cypress trees and mountains and ruins, you know, Olympia and Sparta and all these sort of places. And got to the village that I'd heard one orange harvest would be happening in called Mykinair. And I was a few weeks early, so I just decided to set up camp in the hills behind the village, find a place to stay. And while I was sitting on, on a rock, actually, one evening having my dinner, this guy came past with a bicycle. I'd startled him by sitting there. And he went, oh, hey, and I recognised his accent. It was American. Oh, you're American, aren't you? What are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm waiting for the orange harvest to start. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. Where are you staying? Uh, so he said, well, well, me and this other guy, we found a cave and we're living in that. Do you want to come and look? So, yeah, all right. Well, did they charge you rent? Or? No, no, I didn't know. It was a very large cave. Um, so I went to look and they said, yeah, move in if you like. Uh, you know, so it was a, a short tunnel. Had they in. taken all the best bits already? <laughs> best, there weren't any best bits. <laughs> <laughs> it was a round stone cave full of rubble and sand and dust, you know. Oh, um, it wasn't just full of rubble and sand, was Not it? just rubble and sand dust, but, we, you know, spiders hanging from the, yeah. the, the roof and that sort of thing. Uh, but they said, yeah, move in if you like. Um, uh, so I did. So the three of us lived in this cave for the whole winter because the orange harvest then started in a week or two. And it was a great place to live because this was December. It doesn't get that cold in Greece, but it's cold enough that you don't want to be out on the hillside. And a, a cave underground is warmer. Mm. Uh, so we stayed there. It was wonderful. Uh, and it would have been nice lifestyle. and dry, surely. It was yeah. dry, exactly, yeah. And we kept a fire burning at the entrance all night to keep it warm. And keep the uh, wolves away? Or? Keep the wolves away. Uh, it <laughs> a attracted the tortoises in. Sometimes tortoises would come in and sleep in the cave and then leave in the morning, you know, without so much as a, you know... Thank you very much, goodbye. Yeah, 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 because it was warmer. Um, we'd light the fire every night, actually, to cook dinner on. And then as soon as we'd lit the fire, we'd have to step out into the tunnel because the smoke from the fire would go up and all the spiders would fall out of the ceiling, you know. <laughs> so, we, we got into the habit of lighting the fire, then stepping aside, let the spiders fall out, OK, back into the cave again, <laughs> cook, cook your dinner. Yeah, But this wasn't a natural cave, actually, it was a tomb. Mykinair, the village, was built in the valley below the citadel of Mykinair, which was one of the ancient cities of Greece that took part in the siege of Troy. It was a big city then, Mykinair, but the citadel was in ruins above the valley, um, but all their royal tombs were still there, so this was a tomb which had been looted probably thousands of years ago. There were no, uh, there's nothing left in it. But there were two long grooves in the floor where I think two people had been buried uh, before. You know, so, so we filled in those holes with earth and uh, 
uh, flattened it down to make it, you know, really homely. <laughs> <laughs> How far did this cave go back? Not far. It was, uh, if, 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 um, if you can imagine, actually, uh, um, <laughs> if you can imagine the landscape of Greece, um, all the hills around the um, any, any valley are usually covered with, dotted with olive trees, which have a sort of silvery green colour on terraces. And if you, if you look at a terrace and you see a tree which isn't an olive, you think, oh, why, why is that? That often means that that tree is growing up out of a cave entrance or a tomb entrance. So these hillsides, terraces, were dotted with old caves, old tombs, all of which were open now, and you would walk down a short entrance passage and then the tomb would open up into a sort of beehive shape, very tall, 20 feet tall. Oh, wow, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, which is great for the spiders to live up there, you know, lots of space for them. Yeah, so it was a bit creepy uh, if you thought too deeply about where you were living. But we put candles around the walls, you know. Uh, we, we found... Um... What do I add to the big shadows? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> oh, I'm not creeped out enough. I had a bit of atmosphere. If I'm ever having trouble sleeping now, I just put my mind back of sleeping in the cave and it's such a nice feeling, I, I drift off. I mean, tell me, Pete, if you were as you've just described, spending a summer living in a Greek cave, what would you say are the three key things you really need in order to survive in a cave? Well, I always found that the best item I left home with was a shortwave radio, which was actually given to me as a present by my friends at the um, Ferry Pier in Folkestone as a farewell present. And it was a very inspired presence. It, it kept me in touch with what was happening in the world. You know, BBC World Service, radio, Moscow, I was listening to a lot of the English uh, service, um, Greek radio stations, that sort of thing. I couldn't have lived without that. I couldn't have kept my sanity without the radio to connect me with, with the rest of the world. Well, that's one. That's one. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, it was winter in a cave. Oh, was... winter, oh, sorry. <laughs> when, you, when you're spending winter in a cave, that's a good point. And that's a bit hardcore, actually. Yeah, yeah. Light a fire. Um, you need something to light a fire, don't you? You need something to light a fire. So we would, every day, we would scour the hillside for kindling. Mm. We would just collect it. And actually, it's interesting that after three months living there, we'd more or less used up all the firewood. So that sort of... Uh, made me think about, oh, you know, our, our impact on the environment as human beings. You know, we, we use stuff up wherever we go. Um, so uh, we couldn't have stayed there much longer and carried on cooking because we, we didn't have the fuel. Uh, but apart from my radio, I didn't really need anything else. And that was the whole point of living in the cave. The, the greatest thing I um, took from it was that I had nothing to worry about. I had no bills. You know, I didn't pay rent. had no phone bill, no electric bill. Didn't even have a watch. It didn't really matter what the time was. When the sun came up, it shone into the cave. We got up. Uh, when the sun went down, we'd, you know, cook our dinner and read by candlelight, but then we had to go to, to bed. And I had nothing to keep up with, nothing to uh, worry about. It was a lovely time in my life. When you had these moments where you were living off leaks and almonds, you, you could have phoned home and said, either send us some more money or I'm coming home. Yes, and um, I did want to several times during the winter and autumn, especially when it was rainy and cold wherever I was. I did feel quite fed up sometimes. I did think about going home, but I think what stopped me was my own pride in that I told everyone that I was leaving to go travelling. So how could I turn around and go back uh, and say it didn't work out? So I just had to carry on. Um, so that drove me to keep going, to keep finding ways to keep going, which was by finding work. I'm talking with Hong Kong book publisher Pete Sparrier about his love of travel, which was quite an extended journey before he arrived in Hong Kong. And this uh, journey was in 1991. So, Pete, set us the kind of political landscape at that time. Yeah, it was 1991. By the time I got to Greece, it was just the winter. 
uh, so 1992 started and most of the other orange pickers actually were from places like uh, Ukraine, Poland, Slovakia, Romania and these were countries which had just emerged from behind the Iron Curtain because the Iron Curtain had just fallen in 1990. They were free to travel at last. So it was fascinating to meet so them. So Eastern Europe, yeah. Eastern Europe, most of Eastern Europe, yeah. So at the same time, the Soviet Union fell apart into, I think it made 16 new countries. And that was quite enticing to see whether it might be possible to travel east to see some of that. So one of the orange pickers was an old Irish man. Never worked out how old he was, but he'd been coming to the harvest for years. When you say years. old Irishman, could he yes. have actually been the age that you are now? Well, I was just wondering that as I said it. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was very weathered uh, because he'd been, I think he'd just been travelling for decades, really, really following harvests around from Spain to Italy to Greece and back again. Very weathered. And he was the same colour as his leather bag that he used to carry mm. out of him. And he was a bit lame. He used to limp. So because... Orange picking was a daily job. You'd hang out outside the village cafe in the morning and farmers would drive past on tractors and say, OK, today only 12 people or today seven. You'd put up your hand. He often didn't get picked because they knew he was lame, you know. So he would just sit outside the village cafe and I'd speak to him after we'd come back from the fields. We'd sit around there with our pay because we got paid in cash. No rent to spend it on. So red wine from the village cafe. Fantastic. Sit there, you know, until the evening. One evening he said to me, oh, you know, I don't know why I'm carrying this thing around, I'm not going to use it anymore, why don't you have it? And he opened his satchel and brought out a map that he'd left home with, I think, because it was the Daily Express 1977 map of the Middle East. And he said, why don't you have it? Oh, thanks, Billy. So I opened it up and it covered the part of the Mediterranean we were in, Italy, Greece, Turkey, but it went further east as well to the Silk Road and I could see towns like Samarkand marked on it in mm. Bukhara, places that Alexander the Great had travelled to. And I thought, ah, because, you know, now the Iron Curtain's fallen... I might be able to travel there. So that, then I got in my head to do that. And That's after amazing the, names, isn't aren't it? Aren't they? Yeah, very, very sort of uh, exotic and far away and, and, and romantic. So after the orange harvest finished, I set out east to do that, to travel the Silk Road. So tell me the geography. You're in Greece. How did I was you in go? Greece. I then actually, I, I thought uh, I would go down, well, I wanted to see Egypt first. I went down there, travelled up and down the Nile, then to Israel and got another job there for a while actually to make a bit more money. Yeah, <laughs> yes, hold, which, which hold it right there. Turned you, out to be interesting. Yeah, weren't you a <laughs> yes. waiter in Gaza or something? I, I was, actually I had four jobs in Israel and then I was deported afterwards because I wasn't supposed to be working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can't go back. Such a shame because it's such an interesting country. Oh really? Uh, really? Yeah. Seriously deported? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They oh, told, you, you can't come back to Israel, they said. Mm. They stamped something in my passport that said but so. You went to Gaza as well? So. Yes, I was working as a street sweeper first off in Elat. I would sweep leaves from one end of the street to another, then they'd be blown back again and then this guy would pay me for it. Uh, then I got a job in an experimental farm in the desert, north of Elat, where we were growing onions and uh, melons in the sand. So what, using hydroponics? Yeah. Or? Exactly, yeah, no soil. And there was a curfew there because we were out in the desert near the border with Jordan. But I didn't know how near we were uh, to the border, so I went walking. Y you can imagine the heat in the desert, right? It's in intense. You have to start work really early in the morning and finish at 3pm, whatever. One evening, I was living in this little cabin with four other guys working on the farm. I thought, I'll just walk across the sand dunes for one hour and then turn around and come back again, and that'll take me to sunset, sort of thing. So I walked over the dunes, trying to keep a straight line, came over one tall dune to find myself at a barbed wire fence with raked sand in front of it, and I thought, oh, it's the border. I didn't know we were that close to the border with Jordan, you know. And as I was staring at it, marvelling, two jeeps came from opposite directions, 
uh, and converged on me uh, and said, what, what are you doing here? You know, and I found out I wasn't Israeli. What are you doing? Why, why are you near the border? Have you come across the border? I said, no, 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 you know, I've been working on the farm. So they drove me back to the farm and told me to leave the district or they'd put me in military prison or whatever. So I'd, I had to pack my bag that evening, leave, get a new job. And someone said, oh, there's, there's jobs going in Gaza if, if you want one. You know, there's a hotel there. So I hitchhiked to Gaza, uh, which is sort of Palestinian. Not easy, I no, 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 it's a Palestinian area, uh, you know, <laughs> like the West Bank. Got into Gaza and found this hotel, which had been built for sort of political reasons uh, by the Israelis, as if to say that, you know, Gaza is ours now to you know, sort of make the point we're going to build things here like a hotel. Not that anyone in their right minds would go on holiday to a hotel in Gaza, and they didn't. So it just became, um, it was an empty hotel run by a full staff. And they employed me as the man to do things on Saturdays, you know, observing oh, Jewish people can't work mm. on Saturdays. So they couldn't turn lights off, they couldn't operate ovens, they couldn't operate these big electric gates that let people into the hotel. So I was the only person who could do that. So they employed me around the clock, uh, you know, around the week, just to um, press buttons on Saturdays, the best job I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a fully staffed kitchen just cooking food for all the staff. Breakfast, lunch and dinner, we'd all sit around and have banquets of wonderful Middle Eastern food, you know. Um, I've rarely eaten so well before or since. Yeah. But then I realised I'd been pushing it a little bit by staying in Israel for three months on my two-week tourist visa. So I, I, <laughs> I went to um, Haifa to get a ferry out, and then they, they were not happy with me, and they said, you know, chop my passport, you can't come back, don't do it again. So Goodbye, Mr Sparrow. <laughs> yes. So I'd hoped to go from Israel to Cyprus and then a ferry back into Lebanon, then Syria, then towards the Silk Road. But when you've got an Israeli stamp in your passport, mm. you can't go anywhere. No, 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 forget no, it. No, 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 exactly. So I had to come back on the um, on the ferry to Greece and then go through Turkey, go that way instead. And I had to get a new passport in Turkey because the one I had was then not usable. journey so yeah working in as a street sweeper in israel and also as a waiter in gaza really living the dream oh well yeah. a button presser in gaza button presser, yes, yes, yes yes now tell me about the stands yes so I, I found that these how many stands are there uzbekistan kazakhstan turkmenistan tajikistan kyrgyzstan that's five isn't it i might have missed one i found that these countries were so new they didn't have embassies overseas yet so i went to the russian embassy in ankara to try to get a visa uh, to ask them what, what I should do. And the guy there was, was quite funny, actually. I said, oh, I'd like to go to these new stands. And he just saying, why? He kept saying, why? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I said, well, you know, I want to you know, see mm. these cities, Samarkand and Bukhara, Kiva. And he, he was laughing at me, saying, but, you know, you, they're, they're very poor places, you know, you can't travel very easily. I said, yeah, but I'll give it a go. And I had to come back several days in a row to debate with him about whether he'd give me a visa and he did so he gave me a visa to get rid of you George yes well <laughs> weirdly he still had the authority to give visas to Georgia uh, even though it wasn't part of the Soviet Union anymore so I got this visa for Georgia and a visa for Kazakhstan which were at the start and end of my journey but I didn't have a visa for all the countries in between which were Azerbaijan Turkmenistan Uzbekistan Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan but at least I got into the old Soviet Union. So he gave me this insert sort of visa with a hammer and sickle on it, you know, even mm. though it was 1992 by this stage. So I got into Georgia from Turkey 
and then started travelling east along the Silk Road. But really, he was right, it wasn't easy at all. Uh, these, these countries had been cast adrift from Russia without really asking for it. And none of their distribution networks worked anymore. There was no food in the shops, literally empty shelves in every mm. government food shop. There was no water in the taps when I tried them. So really, it, I starved and I, I was thirsty for, for all the way from west to east. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, a lot yeah. of, that's a lot of territory. A lot of territory. So I was mostly going by train, but it was quite um, hot weather. This is the summer, and it's uh, partly desert, and it's very, very arid, and there's nowhere to get water. And what the local people tend to do is, like, grow watermelons in their gardens and, and use that as moisture and, and then barter with each other, veg they've grown. Uh, but if you're travelling through, it doesn't really work. You know, there's nothing to buy. So I had all these rubles in my pockets that I changed up from Greek drachma, nothing to spend them on. And then a few times I was arrested by just random policemen in the street just had to stop me and check my passport, and I didn't have a visa, so then I had to bribe them, give them money, take them to the police station a couple of times. And then in one case in Uzbekistan, the policeman checked me on the street and didn't have a visa. He said, OK, I'll take you to the police station. We're going to deport you. So he deported me to Kyrgyzstan next door, which I also didn't have a visa. Which, <laughs> so I thought it was fantastic. But they let me in. <laughs> then it's their problem. It's their problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the, the hardest thing was I'd got into Tajikistan and I hoped, I'd sort of vague plan to, you know, I'd seen these wonderful cities. Actually, Samarkand was wonderful. It was really worth the effort to get there. And so, yes, because yeah. what I would say would be that, you know, you're going to have that mix in the early 1990s of this very old cultural heritage and wonderful buildings and this very solid communist architecture everywhere. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, very lucky for, for us, for, for sort of the world in general. These cities were vastly rich in the days of the Silk Road, you know, these cities in oases in the desert like Samarkand. So they built wonderful mosques and towers and mausoleums, wonderful big buildings. And then when the Soviets moved in, they left that there. They just built these big sort of Soviet tower blocks on the outskirts. So it's all still there if you go there. These cities just uh, fell into uh, irrelevance overnight when I think the Portuguese found a sea route to China. Then nobody needed the Silk Road anymore. So it's all still there, but not many people visit. Mm. Hmm. When you look back at your trip, I mean, obviously, when you arrive in Georgia and on, I mean, that's that's a very challenging time for you because you can't even, as you say, depend on what you've been using before because the food and the water just isn't there. Yeah. Um, so that was a tough time. You're saying that you're travelling by train. Mostly, yes. And I'd, I'd had a little phrase book for Europe which covered the main languages like Italian, Spanish, Greek, whatever, and that wasn't going to work. So I'd gone to the British Council in Ankara I'd photocopied pages from a Russian phrase book, you know, so I was using that. So that, that got me a, a long way, actually, because everyone spoke Russian in these stands, right, and in the Caucasus. But what threw me as soon as I arrived in Georgia is that in their excitement to be independent at last, the year before, they'd taken down all the Russian signs everywhere and just put the Georgian ones up, which are in a totally different alphabet. And so it was incredibly disorientating. I didn't know what was what. So uh, that, that was confusing, yeah. And then different money in every country as well. They started issuing their own money. Every time I bought anything, I'd get stacks and stacks of money in, in exchange because it was worth so little. Every time I changed money, actually, I got thousands and thousands more than I had done last time. So every week, the currency was sort of depreciating the ruble. So I had pockets bulging with rubles, and, uh, but nothing to spend it on. Yeah. Uh, no food, no drink anywhere. Hotels were cheap. I, I, I stayed in a hotel in Uzbekistan, which was um, the equivalent of seven pence a night. And that was sort of the best room. I said, you know, they were going to charge me five pence, I think. I said, any, any better room? They should, yeah, to have the, <laughs> have the luxe room, and it's seven pence. <laughs> 
so she couldn't spend anything. But then on the so I've seen summer candles, wonderful, you know, very much worth seeing. I'm very glad I got there with the, the sort of blue domes and, and the pools. It was really um, uh, an insight into the way the Silk Road used to be. And then I thought, okay, I'll carry on vaguely north into Russia and then get the, the Trans-Siberian Railway back and then go back to Europe and get, go back home. But I found that because it was so hard to find food or drink and because the people were actually quite hostile to me in Central Asia because I think looking European I think they thought I was Russian and they were very angry with the Russians for sort of ruining their water table actually they took all the water from the Aral Sea and grew cotton with it now there's no water at all they're pretty angry so a lot of people kept coming up to sort of throw punches at me in the street or shout at me so I learned how to shout back I'm not Russian then they would stop but it was all quite... What is that? <laughs> I, I used to shout Yanyaponimayuruski I don't speak Russian then, then it can confuse them oh, so they say, where are you from? Then I'd say, in, in Russia, I'm from England. They'd never heard of it. So, oh, it doesn't, doesn't that puncture your... So, yes, that's who you are. So I say, America. What about the British Navy? <laughs> exactly. Well, the British Navy never got to the Silk Road, did it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so because it was so difficult, I thought, I, I can't handle any more of this. I'll just go to China and I'll carry on along the Silk Road, right? So I made a... A route east and it was going across Tajikistan and these incredibly high mountains, snow-capped mountains, is it the Tinshan Mountains and the Pamir Mountains? Well, this will be an excellent route to take towards China. So I got into Tajikistan, but then it turned out that it was having a civil war and the, all the roads east of the capital Dushanbe were, were closed so I couldn't go forwards. Oh, So I have to go back again. Couldn't go back because the train I'd come in on was more or less empty the trains out were packed with refugees trying to leave and there were big crowds outside the train station waiting to get in and I tried I think three days in a row to get a ticket couldn't get one so in the end I thought okay I'll just walk out of Tajikistan out of Dushanbe I'll just follow the train line the way I came in I'll just walk so set out to do that walking along the railway line out of Dushanbe then after uh, a while the fence that was um, surrounding the train tracks stopped and I thought oh hang on I could then go on the train tracks and then run back into the station and get in that way. Uh, so I did that, ran back to the station. There were soldiers on the platform patrolling. I waited until they were looking the other way. I ran behind a train that was parked opposite the platform, waited there all day until the refugee train was going to leave in the evening. And as it sort of rolled into place, and I could see people being released onto the platform from down where I was on the gravel, I climbed up the train from the other side while they were pouring in literally through the windows from the, from the platform to get into this train. I came in the other side, you know, climbed, and the train is quite tall from the, the gravel, right, from, the, from the, uh, its wheels. So I climbed up that way into the window, landed on top of this guy who was sitting in a chair. He started shouting at me, and, and um, I was climbing, you know, off him, saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. And, and he, he was shouting at me in Russian, ticket, ticket. And I turned around to look, and he was actually the ticket collector. I pretended I was looking for my ticket, right? Uh, <laughs> until the train sort of shuddered and started moving off. And then I said, oh, no ticket. He went, oh. So he pushed me out into the corridor. So I sat in the corridor between the two carriages, you know, on that sort of metal plate you, you can sit on. And then someone else sat on top of me, and then someone else sat on top of them. And I was buried under people, and I couldn't move. And, but I was just happy I got on this train to get out of the country, right? So this train was going through the desert at night, and 
I could feel people's hands going through my pockets while I was sitting there, but I couldn't do anything about it because I couldn't move either my arms or legs. I was literally buried under people. I was sweating. I hadn't drunk water in days. I'd been eating a clove of garlic every day. I'd found a bulb of garlic in the bottom of my backpack. So I ate one clove every day just to make sure something was going in. And um, it was going to be a 32-hour journey on this train to get to back to Uzbekistan. And after 16 hours buried under people, I felt myself about to be sick. You know, and I thought, oh no, I'm buried under all these people. I'm going to be sick over them all. But couldn't do anything about it. And I felt this sort of bile rising, and it came up into my throat and came out, but it wasn't vomit, it was a scream. I, I screamed without knowing I was going to do it. And, and I tried to sort of choke it off, but I must made such a strange noise, people started climbing off me, uh, you know, to see what, what was wrong. And I thought, okay, I can't handle this any longer. This is a very, very difficult situation. So the train was rumbling very slowly through the desert. I just picked up my little backpack and threw it out the window. And then I climbed out the window myself and just jumped off the train. Into the desert? Into the desert. That's in the extraordinary. Dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sat there and watched the train rumble off and then sort of got myself together, picked myself up and then walked, carried on in the same direction, walking along the railway line. And we'd, without knowing it, we'd actually crossed the border into Uzbekistan already. So when the morning came, when the sun rose, I found myself walking into a small town and found out, oh, it's Uzbekistan. So from there I could get a bus to um, the, the main town of Uzbekistan, uh, Tashkent. And then that's where I, I was arrested by this policeman. He deported me. But at that stage, I didn't care. I was just <laughs> <laughs> quite happy to be moving forward. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. yeah. But so that's I was, extraordinary. I don't, yeah. I don't know that I'd have the wherewithal just to jump into the desert. No, but it was that or carry on being buried under people. Mm. You're in Uzbekistan, so I'm really going to have to get a map out to follow Pete's barrier. I, I can lend you my 1977 you map of the Middle got East. You still got oh, it? Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. good. Um, no, no, I love old atlases and so things, yes. Yeah. So I'm talking with Hong Kong book publisher Pete Sparrow on his journey before he arrived in Hong Kong. You're in Uzbekistan. How do you carry on? So then it was into Kyrgyzstan. I was deported into Kyrgyzstan. They were happy to let me in for some strange reason. Then into Kazakhstan. Then I thought, okay, I'm very close to the border with China now. I'll just cross into China. So I got a 10-day visa, which is the, the, the most they would offer in the Chinese embassy in Kazakhstan, in Almaty. Crossed the border, across a very wide no-man's land, very strange environment, and crossed into Xinjiang, and then got to Urumqi, the capital. And then my plan was, okay, I'll... Um, get the train to Beijing. I'll then cross into Russia and get the transparent home. Uh, but I found that I just didn't have enough money. Uh, I'd got, I think I'd got 50 US dollars left uh, in a note that I'd been keeping in my shoe for emergencies. But when I took it out, I'd worn a hole in it, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> probably by jumping out of trains. <laughs> you know, so but I mean, while you're talking about these misfortunes <laughs> occurring to you, I, the, the feeling that I also get is, Wow, we wouldn't have had blacksmith books if you'd right. turned round. It's so, lucky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank I, you for I, burning a hole through yeah. your... <laughs> and and I, I really, I, you know, some of these things were hard at the time, but I really i am glad that I did them. I have no regret whatsoever in getting myself into these scrapes because it was all real life experience that I didn't yes, have Yes, and time. I think um, also, I mean, travel, meeting people, all the conversations that you'd have had, but also, as I say, the negative experience some of the time, but also these, these stories that you're telling me of living in a Greek cave. I mean, you really do show, well, how self-sufficient a person can be, but also how little we actually need. I mean, without 
going off on too much on that tangent, it is true, isn't it? You can have a, a very contented, minimalist lifestyle. You really can, yeah. I, I found that going down to no money several times has really um, ended up in me having no fear whatsoever of it happening in the future. Because I know I can deal with it, I know I survived before, so if it comes again, no big deal. So when I arrived in Xinjiang, it was still a very Central Asian-looking environment. It was stony desert. Then as we travelled by train southwest towards Gansu, towards the Great Wall of China, you saw mountains become closer on both sides until you started going through a narrow gap. And that was the old way into China from Europe, where the Great Wall meets the mountains. That made a natural barrier. So I got off the train there. I slept on top of the Great Wall one night, listening to animals howling in the, in the, in the hills. Then back on the train the next day. And as soon as we'd passed the Great Wall the landscape changed to be uh, more watery, more green, and then you could see people well, building terraces on the hills to, to um, plant veg and rice and whatever. So I'm seeing the scenery change gradually and the people change gradually as well as I travel from west to east. And you arrive in Beijing? Yes, only because Beijing was on the route to then get south to Hong Kong. So tried to switch over as quickly as I could, got trains south and then arrived at the border with Hong Kong. Yeah, and then walked across the bridge and in. My thanks to Pete Spurrier there, talking about the long journey that brought him to Hong Kong in the early 1990s, where he's lived ever since. Pete is the publisher of Blacksmith Books and the author of a series of Hong Kong hiking books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Music